Hi, good to see you. My name's Brad. I've, I've met four, uh, four of you today, and you're probably wondering who I was. I'm Brad. Uh, I'm the campus pastor here. Uh, nice to meet you all. Uh, we have some things happening amongst our communities uh, that we need to just keep you updated on. Uh, for instance, this Friday, we have something called Sing. And uh, what it is, it's a, it's a longer kind of worship service. Happens over at our main campus in Green Lake, and it starts at 8 o'clock. It goes till about 9.30, and it's just music. There's a, a short time, a devotional, a little bit in the middle, but most of it, it's, it's just music, singing along. Uh, it's a place for us to worship. Also, on September 25th, I had to write the date down on my hand because uh, I forgot, I kept forgetting what it was. We're, we're having a Financial Peace University. How many of us have taken it or heard about it? There's a few. So there, we're having that. It's over at the Green Lake campus again. If you want to register, it's online. And that just goes through, uh, I might be saying this, we have some CPAs in the room, I might be saying this wrong. Uh, they will correct me. Uh, it's how to look at your finances, how to be debt-free, how to live in and use your money uh, uh, for good and, and be free of the weight that we have on money. Uh, am I close? Not in your head? Okay, great. Uh, that is, starts on September 25th over at the main campus. Uh, if you want more information on that, uh, hop online, go to the events section, and you'll see Financial Peace University uh, and sign up for that. There's a host of other things happening, uh, things from, uh, there's uh, alpha groups where if you, if you want to know more about the faith and talk about Christianity in a, in a way that's non-threatening, open to a whole bunch of questions, uh, that's a place where you can go. Alpha starts soon. Uh, there's also Bethany Wilderness for you hikers. Uh, and outdoors people. Uh, we have something called Bethany Wilderness, and they take a bunch of hikes. They take a big group of people, and they go. And that's combining of all six campuses. They get together and head out. So there's a lot of areas for us to get involved. And then coming soon, uh, probably in the next month or so, we're going to kick off a fresh round of gatherings. Gatherings are our versions of small groups, and those will be starting up again soon. Uh, stay tuned for that. Uh, if you are new with us today, on the back as you leave, there's a welcome card. Uh, we will not sell your information to people. I will not forward you things from my uncle in Nigeria asking you for money because we're going to get rich. Uh, it's just things that we can send you an email or two, let you know what's going on in the community, uh, point you to some ways to be connected into a, a gathering group, and just keep you updated on what's happening in the life of the church. If you want to grab one of those on the way out, I think Allison will be back there at the door as you're leaving, and she'll pass those out and just fill it out and give it back to us when you're done. I think that's all the stuff that I need to talk about. So pray with me, and then we'll get started about uh, Deuteronomy. Father, we thank you uh, for days like today, breaks from the rain uh, and the sun coming through. Uh, we thank you that we can gather in a place like this. Uh, we thank you for the changing of seasons. Or we thank you for friends. Uh, we thank you for three-day weekends. Uh, Lord, may you be amongst us today. May we be present, or where we, may, may we be mindful of your presence around us, within us, and through us. Uh, may you open our hearts uh, to what your, your word need, might need to say to us today. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So in philosophy class in college, it was always this question of what brings the most life. Have you ever had those philosophy classes? All they want to talk about is the good life. This is how you have the good life. This is what it means to be successful. And so these philosophers stir around all sorts of thoughts. And really, none of the ideas that we have for what the good life is supposed to be have changed from back in ancient Greece. They're usually the same. One of the thoughts says that you need to partake in everything that you can get your hands on. 
That means live life with no rules, don't care about the consequences, just live and consume as much as possible. Then and only then will you have the good life. Then on the other, I would say that's an extreme, right? Take everything, eat, drink, for tomorrow we might die. And then you go to the other side where it says you have to be a hermit. Uh, Go find a tree to live under in the middle of the Olympic Peninsula and stay there and don't talk to anybody. And then you'll be, more people are nodding their head yes about that (laughs) being the good life. Okay, so we have a bunch of hermits. Welcome, Hermitville. (laughs) But you have these extremes of what is supposed to bring us happiness. What is supposed to bring us peace? What is supposed to bring us joy? Is it overconsumption of everything or is it secluding from everything? And the answer is not in the, diff- in the poles. The answer is not on the extremes. It's probably someplace in the middle. Moses, uh, the guy who, uh, Deuteronomy is kind of his farewell chapter to the people of Israel. He's writing as he's looking at his final days. He's writing this as a memoir of, hey, people of Israel, this is what we've been through. An entire generation has risen up in the desert. The people who left Egypt are now gone. They have died off. Moses is the only one left. Uh, They had their chance to go into the promised land. They didn't think that God's promise was for real. And so God said, fine, you're not going to take this promise. I'll wait till you all die, and the next generation will come up and take the promised land. (coughs) Moses is the last one. And as he's looking at the death as his death, and we'll study that next week, he starts writing down little secrets on, to ha- on how to have the good life for the people of Israel. He gives us three keys on what it means to live well, what it means to live in and have the most out of this life. The first one he talks about is his is identity. The second one is obedience. And, and the third one he gets to is a, is a lasting memory. Moses talks about this because he's been around for a while. He's 120 years old and he has seen the good parts of life. He has seen the bad parts of life. He's seen the good parts. He grew up royalty. He saw God face to face. He had conversations with God that lasted weeks on top of a mountain. He saw the good parts of life. He had the frustrating side too. He was abandoned. He was exiled to the far side of the desert. He grew up not knowing who he was in his identity. And he had a hot, hot temper that kept him away from the promised land. So he has seen both sides of life. And he brings the people of Israel close to him and says, listen up. I've been around. I've seen things. If you want the good life, here it is. And the first thing he talks about is his identity. If you want to have a good life, look at your core identity. I was reading an article the other day. And and you know those Facebook things, the clickbait. And I'm scrolling through. And I click on it, and it's how to be more interesting at parties. I figured, I'm not very interesting. Uh, Obviously, I don't get invited to a lot of parties. Maybe it's because I'm not very interesting. And so I clicked on it, like, I I should work on this. And so it tells you everything, that top 10 things to make yourself more interesting. One of the things was, when you're asked what you do, don't say, I'm a pastor. Okay, Good, good to know. That's a conversation ender, by the way. Uh, if, you're on a, if I'm on an airplane, someone asks what I do, oh, well, it was nice talking to you. We haven't even taken off yet. Uh, but, and it goes for anything. It says when, if someone says, what do you do, and you're a teacher, they, they say, tell a story about what you do, not necessarily what you do. So you're a teacher. I shape the minds of the future. Oh, tell me more of that. Uh, 
you know, if, if you're a banker, well, I help people achieve wealth. Oh, good. Uh, you People want to know more about this. And so it's this invitational kind of way of portraying yourself. But everything in this article talked about how to define yourself by what you do or who you hang out with or who you're married to. Everything about that were external circumstances of how to identify yourself. And the problem with that is if you identify yourself by your work, if you identify yourself by who you, who you work for or who you're voting for, when those things go away, so does your identity. Your identity is only as deep about, of your, as your identity is only as deep as the thing you identify with. That's the problem with our society. We like to identify ourselves by things that aren't necessarily our core identities. So Moses, when he's looking at the people of Israel, sees this same problem. Israel had an identity problem. They'd been in the desert for 40 years. The people coming through, that's all they had known was the desert. And so they identify themselves as nomadic tribe who's been in the desert. They used to be slaves. They don't have a home. They're just a bunch of nobodies. So Moses' first thing he says was, be silent, Israel. In, verse, in chapter 30, be silent, Israel. And listen, be silent. The word silent there is to rest, to be still. We have a way of being active and trying to figure out who we are. I remember in high school, we want to be punk rockers, so we go listen to punk music, and that's who we are. We're punk or ska, or I'm old, so that's what we were into. I don't know what, what they were into those days. But now people try and find their identity, and they go to, like, nth degrees to find it. You work long hours, so you're known as a hard worker. Who, who you hang out with so you're known as that type of person. And we busy ourselves trying to identify ourselves. Moses' first words are, sit still, listen to your identity. And he continues, you have become the people of the Lord your God. Be silent. This is who you are. You are people of the Lord your God. He's talking to the nation of Israel. What he's saying there in Deuteronomy is an echo of what happened in Exodus chapter 19 where God actually said, you are my people. You will be my priests. You will be my representatives to the world. That's an echo of that, which is an echo of something earlier when, when God says to Abraham, I will make for you a nation of people that will be my representatives. That is also an echo of the first time God spoke people and humanity's true identity. In day six, he looked at man and woman and said they are good. When we were created, we were created with the image of God on our hearts. Our primary identity of each and every person in this room and outside of this room, any person you see with the pulse any person that you come across has the identity that they are essentially good. We tell ourselves that we are essentially bad and we start to, to take on various identities to try and make ourselves something better than what we are or what we think we are. But the first words that God spoke over you were that you were good. Your true identity is that you are good, you are cherished, you are loved by the God of this universe.
who made you. That's the core of who you are. Before you are anything else, before you are your job, before you are, your, you are married to your spouse, before you can even think about anything, you are called good. Before the people of Israel stepped foot across the Jordan River, they were known as the people of God. They hadn't done anything yet. Before Jesus takes on his ministry and goes in and saves humanity and does all the miracles, before he does anything, he gets baptized. The dove descends on him, and God says of him, this is my son whom I am well pleased. Jesus hadn't done anything yet. The same is true of all of us. You have the image of God written on your heart. You are good. That's where we start from. That's your core identity. We don't have to go gain a title. We have a title that's already ours. It's it's something, and all we have to do in, in this title is simply live into what's already true of us. We are good. Now it's our job to meet our job description that we already have. It's this idea, it's a big word, and and maybe you can use it in a conversation, I dare you. It's called eschatological realism. It took a while for me to be able to pronounce that. Eschatological realism. It's the future of reality. So it's living into your future being or living into something that is already true of you. It is already true that you were made good. You have the image of God on your heart. You are called good. You are loved. His name, your name is written on God's hands. He knew you before you were even born inside your mother's womb. There he loved you. And now eschatological realism means that we live into something that is already true of us, whether we believe it or not. It works out like this. Judah was born in November, and I became a dad. That time they handed him to me in the, in, in the, in the delivery room, and he was slimy. He looked kind of like an alien. He handed, it, handed him to me, and he said, here you go, Dad. I had never changed a diaper before Judah's diaper, yet I was being called a dad. All I had to do to gain that title was walk in with the correct car seat. I never, there was no class. There was, you are now a father. Live into the reality that you are a father. That night on November 17th at 11.45 p.m., we barely, she barely got him in on the 17th, which was a goal. Uh, uh, On that night, I had the full rights and privileges of being a dad, yet I had no idea how to be a dad. You tracking with me? It was true of me at that moment that I was a father. My job now is to live into my role as a father. It is true of you that at your core identity is you are loved and cherished by God. And your role now is to live into something that's already true of you, whether you believe it or not. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you think you are. Your core identity is loved and cherished. And as we live into that, we now have a life of obedience. And it's not obedience that we have to obey these rules. It's obedience that's based out of your identity. 
When you live into a life of obedience based in your identity, it makes more sense why you do things this way and why you don't do things this way. It's because it's who you are. You're loved and cherished, and when you are loved and cherished, your life goes in a certain direction. So we have a bad concept of obedience, do we not? We don't like obedience. When someone says obey, we tend to go, no way, shut up, I'm going to do it my own way. I don't want to obey. My parents had this thing, they would look at me and they would argue, I would argue with them about what I wanted to do, and there was always the end of the argument where when mom or dad would stand there and go, obey. I go, ugh, but I don't want to. And then they would just look at me and go, it's fine, obey. And they, but what they were doing, they weren't trying to be heavy-handed. They weren't trying to be jerks and leave me to, and, and keep me from having fun. Mom and dad knew more about me than I knew about me. And they were seeking the best for me because they knew who I was and the actions that I was trying to do were not out of my chorus identity. They wanted me to obey because they knew it was best. Moses says to the people of Israel, you know who you are, now live a life of obedience. If we look in, the, in chapter 28, verse 1 of Deuteronomy, it says this, if you fully obey the Lord your God and carefully follow all of his commands I give you today, the Lord God will set you high above the nations of the earth. Moses is telling the people that when they obey, they'll find a life of joy. They'll find a life without shame, a life rooted deeply in, the, in God and confident in his hope. But he's saying, but notice what he's saying. He's not saying if you obey, that's what makes you acceptable. They've already been accepted. They've already been called children of God. They're already accepted. Obedience is something that flows out of an identity. When you obey, we don't earn a title. We don't obey, uh, and, and so we can have people say good things about us. We obey because it's who we are. It's what we do. When you're a child of God, you live in a certain way. My dad, my mom, and I were taking a test drive of my mom's car one day, and my mom is, she says she's 5'1", she's like 4'10". She calls herself taller than she's a, she's a wee little person. Uh, and so, but she's got fire. Don't, don't mess with her. Uh, but we were driving, we were test driving a car, and she wanted an SUV, a big one. And so we're in California, we're driving through, and mom wants to drive this, and so she raises the seat and gets it real close to the wheel, and she's driving. Dad and I are in the back seat, the car dealer's in the front. And, and dad and I are going, man, this car's way too big for her. And we're driving along, and, and she takes a turn, and she clips the, the curb on the corner. And it, she, she was going like 40. And it, it, it rocked the whole car. And I looked over at my dad, and I went, uh-oh, that's not good. We get back to the dealer, and we go, and as I get out of the car, I, I, I stop, and I look down, and I see there's a big split in the tire. Uh, yeah, and it was some of those low-profile tires, the really expensive ones. And I looked at my dad, and I went, oh, that wasn't there when we started. And, and he goes, okay. And I said, what, what are we going to do? And he goes, I don't know yet. And, and he walks into the dealer. We didn't tell mom yet what, what she did. Um, but uh, we go into the dealer, and we sit down at the desk, and I always like to watch dad wheel and deal. And he goes, oh, get towards the end, he goes, oh, and we blew your tire. 
by the way. And the dealer goes, oh, no, 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 that was there. And my dad goes, no, because it's on the back tire where my wife ran up on the curb going 40 miles an hour. We blew your tire. And the dealer said, oh, okay. Uh, he goes to the back, and, and I'm wondering, Dad, why he was going to let it let you skate and probably get you a new tire. He goes, yeah, but it's not who I am to lie about this. Obedience, in that, in that sense, costed my dad something, right? It cost him an extra 600 bucks to pay for the tire. Obedience doesn't always mean when we obey that we're going to get treats like we're some kind of good puppy. Obedience, out of who we are, oftentimes will cost us something. It cost the dad 600 bucks because it wasn't in his identity of what God says that's about him, what, what God says who he is to lie. Obedience doesn't always end up giving you a nice fancy treat at the end of the day. Sometimes obedience doesn't give you a reward immediately. Oftentimes your reward for obedience is found on the other side of pain. Stephen in Acts 7 obeyed. And when he obeyed, he was then stoned to death. Is that a reward? No. Doesn't seem like it. Paul, when he obeyed, was shipwrecked, he was beaten, he was stoned, he was eventually killed because he obeyed. Jesus, Philippians says, obeyed even to the point of death on a cross. Sometimes our obedience, and we have this misconstrued idea of obedience, thinking if we obey, we'll get reward, but oftentimes that's not always true. If we don't obey, we don't get the life of peace that we're looking for because then you're tacking things onto your identity and you're not living the way that you have been called to live, the way that you have been designed to live. Moses talks about the consequences of not obeying in verse 65 of 28. He says, if you don't obey, you will find no repose. You will find no resting place for the sole of your foot. The Lord will give you an anxious mind and weary, and eyes weary with longing and a despairing heart. You will live in constant suspense filled with dread both day and night and never sure of your life. In the morning you will say, if only it were evening, and in the evening you will say, if only it were morning, because of the terror you will fill your hearts with and the sights that your eyes will see. When we don't obey, when we don't live according to who we are, we'll have no peace. We obey and we live the way that God has designed us to live, a lot like why my parents made me obey, because it's what's best for us. It's how we were designed to live. Dad didn't lie, because it's not him. He would have felt terrible for the rest of the time they own the car because there's that one thing that was built on the foundation of something that's not him. When we disobey, we don't have peace, but there's a hope in that. When we disobey, we don't have peace, but we have a promise because we can't go through life. We're going to screw up. We're all going to sin. We're all going to live contrary to our primary identity. That's just a given 
Paul talks about that in Romans. He has who he is. He has his identity, but he keeps trying to live this way, and he keeps failing. And so he does what he, what he wasn't meant to do, and what he was meant to do, he doesn't do. And so he has this tension, and we all have this part of our lives when we disobey. But in that, we have a hope. We have a grace. Jo- Moses talks about this in, verse 30, in chapter 30. He says, when all the blessings and curses, he talks about the curses of disobedience. And then in chapter 30, verse 1, he says, when all those curses have gone away and you return, then when you obey God with all your heart and all your soul, according to everything that was commanded, the Lord will restore your fortunes. The Lord will have compassion and gather you again from all the nations from where you were scattered. Moses is speaking prophetically here because the children of Israel did not obey and they went into exile. And he said, even in the exile, there is hope of a return. There is hope of coming back. When we obey and we turn around, we will have grace. Grace isn't why we go out and disobey. We don't say, well, I have this bank account and there's a lot of grace left in it, so I'm just going to spend it all and go do whatever I want. That's not why we disobey. Paul says, may we sin more so that this grace account increase. He says, absolutely not. We don't go out and we, we have a promise of return. We have a grace that will be restored So the places where we feel that we have gone too far, that God won't take us back, there's hope for that today. We tend to say that I'm too messy for God to love me. I've done too much. I've seen too many things for God to accept me for who I am. And that's not true. There is a grace for even that. You can't outrun God's grace. You can't go too far to where you can't come back. There's nothing that you can do to make him love you more and there's nothing that you've done to make him love you less. That grace is there. And that's the second, the third part of Moses' uh, challenge to the people. He says, remember that grace. A lasting memory of the grace of God in the disobedience and your primary identity. Moses talks about memory He says we need it in order to have this good life. We need to know what God has done for us. We need to remember what God has done for us. And so in chapter 29, he talks and says, your eyes have have seen all that the Lord did with Pharaoh to his officials and to all of his land. With your own eyes, you've seen great trials and those signs and great wonders. He's talking about the grace that they saw when they first came in the desert. The grace that was there, and they saw it. That's a kind of grace that shouts. It's loud. Everybody notices it. We've seen that kind of grace. You might have seen in your, in your own life where you've seen healing happen when someone was terminally ill, given weeks to live, and they've been going now for years. You might have seen that. You might have seen the grace come to you when you were down to your last penny, not knowing where the money was going to come from, and then automatically there's a check in the mail for something you completely forgot about. Grace that house that you were looking for because you had to be out of yours by that date and you didn't know if it was going to come or not. And, and all of a sudden, on the like 11.59 of the time you're supposed to leave, there's a house that drops in your lap. Grace. And that's the kind of grace that shouts your name. The kind of grace that does to Pharaoh 10 plagues where everybody notices it. That's loud grace. But Moses has them look at something else. 
Moses has them look at the grace that whispers. The grace that doesn't get noticed by everybody all the time. The grace that's quiet. The grace that's subtle. He has them, he says, look in verse 4 of 29. But to this day the Lord has not given you a mind that understands uh, or the eyes that sees or hears. In other words, he's saying you don't have this built into it. You haven't started to look for this. In verse 5, yet the Lord says, During the 40 years I led you throughout the wilderness. Your clothes didn't wear out, nor did the sandals on your feet. You ate no bread and you drank no wine or no other fermented drink. I did this that you might know that the Lord was your God. For 40 years, the people complained about not having food, yet they had food every single day. People complained about not having water, yet water came whenever they needed it. And those were the things that they were constantly complaining about. But they failed to recognize that for 40 years, their shoes didn't wear out. Have any of you had a pair of shoes for 40 years that you wore every day that never wore out? It's the little things, right? I have a t-shirt that I've had for eight years. It has holes where holes should not be, and it's wearing out. I love it. Gary's telling me to throw it away. I love that t-shirt, but it's old and faded, and it's only been eight years. Forty years, and their robes never went away? Yet they were complaining that God isn't with them. Grace that whispers is often the hardest to hear, and it's often the hardest to see. We want God to be shouting all the time from the rooftops and the mountaintops of how powerful he is. We want the flash, the pop, the sizzle. But oftentimes, God's presence and God's grace is close enough to us to whisper. And when he whispers, we miss it. We're expecting God to talk over the voices in our lives, the circumstances in our lives, when oftentimes God is talking under them, on the shoes, the everyday things, shoes, clothes, roofs. You have these small things where God is present, where God is working, and Moses knew something about this too. He had been watching it for 40 years, seeing the presence of God. And when you notice the times that God is whispering, we start to see the presence and the, const the consistency of him. And when there's a consistency of God whispering, that's where we build this lasting memory of who God is, what he says about us, and why we obey what he says of us is true. A friend of mine has his watch beep every hour on the hour. It's a reminder to him of who God says about him. So every hour... He says, Lord, thanks for, this, thanks for your presence in this hour. That's a reminder to him. For me, I like watching birds. And I see a bird go overhead and it calms me. It, it's a weird thing. I'm not a bird watcher. I don't go around with binoculars yet. Uh, but I see them. And for me, it's a reminder of something. It's a reminder that God takes care of those birds and gives them everything that they need. So he's going to take care of me and give me everything that I need. So when I see a bird from a sparrow to a crow to an eagle or whatever, in my head I go, me too. It's a reminder of his everyday presence. It's a reminder of who I am. 
and what God says about me. It's a reminder for me to obey, not because I'm going to get something, because or rather I obey because it's not who I am to live in that certain way. We have keys to a good life, yet we go chasing it down in every single direction and every single possibility except for the one who says, this is how you live a good life. Be confident in who God says you are. Obey his statutes, obey his principles, and remember that every step of the way, he has been with you. Now that's a good life. And I pray that we find it. Join me. Father, we thank you. We thank you that what you say about us is that we are good. Before we were bad, we were good. We live in a Genesis 3 world full of brokenness and shame and darkness and sin, but we weren't born in Genesis 3. We were made in Genesis 1. And in Genesis 1, you smile and say, you are good. And Lord, because of Christ, we can have a relationship with you. Because of Christ, we can stir that identity of you written on our hearts and live the way that we were intended, at peace with you, at peace with our neighbors, at peace with ourselves, because we're not trying to figure it out. We're confident in our, in our identity. We're confident in our shapes. Lord, may your spirit speak truth to us today. May we, be no, may we notice uh, the things in our lives where you have taken care of us that might be a whisper instead of a shout, uh, that voice of consistency in the world of ambiguity uh, when everything says you're not there. May we look for your presence in the everyday. It's in your name we praise. Amen.